Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Undoing the Falsifications of History, a crash course on the U.S. and forever war with cultural historian H. Bruce Franklin. And this is, of course, Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock with the Star Spangled Band. there are any number of powerful songs we might use tonight, especially from the late 1960s and protests against the Vietnam War, this one seems to me most necessary. A black man, a trained paratrooper of the U.S. Army, on a right-handed electric guitar, playing it upside down and left-handed, interpreting a national anthem that is pro-war in intent and yet pro-revolution, that is an anthem of a slave nation, written by a supporter of slavery and its full lyrics are never sung as part of public events, because there is a more complete and honest history there that would be exposed. But as we must find out for ourselves, descriptions and definitions of patriotism in songs or in official histories are written by the masters of war. Today's guest, H. Bruce Franklin, was once a tugboat mate and then an Air Force navigator and intelligence officer. He is now, and has been for more than half a century, a progressive activist and renowned historian and author. His 19 books and hundreds of articles have won him top awards for lifetime achievement in fields as diverse as American studies, science fiction, prison literature, and marine ecology. He retired in 2016 from a 30-year career as a professor at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. His latest book is Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War, published by Rutgers University Press. It is memoir, history, and analysis, artfully woven together in the service of revelation. Growing up during the Second World War, Bruce Franklin believed what he was told, that America's victory would lead to a new era of world peace. Like most Americans, he was soon led to believe in a worldwide communist conspiracy that menaced the United States, forcing the nation into a disastrous war in Korea. But once he joined the U.S. Air Force and began flying top-secret missions as a navigator and intelligence officer, what he learned was eye-opening. He saw that even as the U.S. preached about peace and freedom, it was engaging in an endless cycle of warfare, bringing devastation and oppression to fledgling democracies across the globe. Crash Course gives readers a unique first-hand look at the building of the American empire and the damage it has wrought. It also finds startling parallels between America's foreign military exploits and the equally brutal tactics used on the home front to crush organized labor, anti-war, and civil rights movements. And now, undoing the falsifications of history with H. Bruce Franklin on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome to Interchange, Bruce Franklin. 
Hi, Doug. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that uh, intro with Jimi Hendrix, the discordant and dissident. Uh, A nice intro to your book as well. Uh, uh, Bruce, your book, uh, Crash Course, largely seems to be about coming to consciousness in, in, a, in one way, I suppose, and is generally, uh, as a narrator, as a writer, that has to be a backwards glance. You have to sort of go back and see, when did I realize these things, or how, do I begun, uh, how, did, how did I not see them, right? So you wake up throughout the book, and you, you're able to read all those clues from your life about the lies the U.S. public and military excuse me, and military personnel is told. Um, but let's start, uh, if you don't mind, with the subtitle of the book, which is From the Good War to the Forever War. Um, and I assume most folks think of World War II as a good war. So is there a way, do you describe that as a good war? No, uh, unfortunately, we lost that war. I mean, we were fighting against certain forces, we thought, you know, militarism, fascism, imperialism, and so forth. And we lost, and we lost partly because of how we fought that war. Uh, Using as our main strategy, terror attacks on civilian populations, uh, ending with uh, the ones on August 8th uh, in Japan. So... It's interesting that two great novels that came out of that war, uh, Catch-22 and Slaughterhouse-5, one written by a bombardier, the other by somebody on the ground in Dresden, both of those novels see that we lost that war. We didn't win it. Hmm. Now, you say we lost by how we fought it, so there's a a way in which um, it's one of those trying to understand how you fight a war the right way. Uh, It may may be a problem for some people. Yeah, (laughs) it's a debate that's gone on for for (laughs) centuries. Right, the just war. Although, yes, and I think that in understanding the Vietnam War, we have to see that... uh, when Jop, um, who was the main theoretician of that war, made the moral factor the decisive factor. It was it was how he developed the strategy, which defeated actually first the Japanese, then the French, and then the United States. Hmm. So uh, let's uh, the book itself centers on Vietnam and your own, uh, I suppose. Uh, consciousness raising, your realization of how you should fight against a pro-war culture, a pro-war nation. Uh, And you mentioned there a moral strategy. I I think uh, maybe we can hear a little bit more about that. How how does one have a moral strategy? What is that strategy of Diop's? Well, basically it was that the Vietnamese people were fighting a just war uh, against imperialism. And the opponent in that war was fighting an unjust war, an imperialist war. Mm -hmm. And that as people in both both Vietnam and the United States, well, even before that, France, because of the same strategy, came to understand that the balance of power shifted and that the whole uh, three-stage strategy, beginning with guerrilla war, which is only the first stage, all of that depended upon a change of consciousness, 
and, and in the United States, um, we, we have to, to understand where we are now. We have to understand that tens of millions of people in the United States finally came to understand something about our government, what it was based on, what it was doing, um, that, we, that we live in, a, in, in, a, in an empire. Uh, and that movement has, has, not gone, has not gone away. It's a, very, it's a very powerful movement in American life today. We, we're in a pitch of battle for the future of our nation and, and, uh, and the planet, of course. I, I'm sure most of the listeners uh, understand that. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is H. Bruce Franklin, author most recently of Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War, which shows that the U.S. has been at war continually since 1945, the year of its so-called victory. Uh, so Vietnam um, is is one of those, as you say, the, the period in which I think many in the, this country were exposed to the idea that their government... Um, rarely spoke the truth about at least things, foreign wars, foreign activity, foreign policy, etc. Hard to imagine believing in it in many ways after that. And yet we continued to sort of struggle against that, trying to understand how it is we are supposed to operate within a country uh, when when no one has any trust at all in the government. Now, th- this is not true of everyone, right? I mean, people well, definitely believe well, there was a good war. It's not war. everyone. Right, That's right, true. But right. it, I think you're really hitting on something very important there. This is a very divided nation. Um, Everybody knows that. But across the political spectrum, um, in a way uniting the various competing forces, is is an agreement um, that our government is lying, that that this is a a government of exploiters of of predators of 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 various kinds um the metaphor used by people on the quote other side is is a swamp but um who would disagree with who would disagree with that and that's so radically different from the way america was um in say the mid the mid 50s the um University of Massachusetts has a um, Michigan has a poll they've been conducting every two, two, uh, two years on whether the American people see the government as something that's working for everybody or whether it's a government that's operating in the interest of a, a very few people. Um, and in in the mid fifties, day 50, 54, 76 percent of the American people believe that this is a government that operated in the interest of all America. 20 years later, in 74, that had switched exactly the opposite. Now, three-quarters of the American people believe that the government operated for the interest of, of a few against the interest of most Americans. And that shift in consciousness is a historic shift um, and we need to understand how that came about um, and, and what it means for us today. Mm. 
Well, you uh, you do say, uh, you know, actually you call your first chapter the last victory with a question mark. And as you were just going through the reasons why we, we lost that war, even as it's claimed as a victory, um, you also note that it's, it's plausible to argue that the Vietnam War began in that same period, began in August 1945. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, I, I, this is because the, the, the moment that's everything flows from in, in, the, in the narrative of, of the book is, as it describes my intersection as an individual with history. August 14th, 1945, VJ Day. I was 11 years old. I was the back of a pickup truck filled with other kids, and we were part of an impromptu uh, motorcade in Brooklyn, driving around all the, the different neighborhoods. And everybody was pouring into the street, just thousands and thousands of people. Everybody was cheering, waving American flags, dancing in the streets. And we kids were screaming our hearts out, yelling, peace, peace, the war is over. And you know, we all believed that this was it. War was over. We won the big one. And now we have, there's going to be a future of peace and prosperity um, for us and, and for, uh, for the world. Little did we know that that very day was the beginning of the August Revolution in Vietnam, when the Vietnamese people rose up and in two weeks defeated the Japanese occupiers. So on September 1st in Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh read the Declaration of Independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. He read it to a half a million Vietnamese gathered there to celebrate their independence. And and at that very moment, two warplanes flew overhead. They were P-138 lightnings. And when the people recognized them as American planes, they united like one person in this great thunderous cheer because they knew that we, of all people, would be the ones that would support their independence. Little did they know that on August 22nd, about 10 days earlier, Charles de Gaulle had gone to Washington and gotten President Truman to agree to finance, support, and arm and transport a French invasion of Vietnam and to provide 12 troop ships to bring this invasion army, which included Waffen-SS hold units, um, from Europe to, to reinvade uh, Vietnam and the rest of the French so-called Indochine. Meanwhile, before that invasion flotilla could get there, the British landed. They rearmed the Japanese, so, and they, they actually had uh, British planes and the Japanese Air Force bombing and strafing the Vietnamese people. So when, the, when those troop ships arrived in Saigon, 
in the late fall of 45, they were met on the docks by uniformed, rearmed Japanese soldiers who saluted them. Above the troop ships, there was a tower manned by Japanese soldiers manning machine guns. So every single enlisted man on that flotilla of troop ships drew up a petition and signed it, denouncing imperialism and expressing their outrage at what we were doing to subjugate the people of Vietnam. This is the beginning of the anti-war movement. Mm, mm. We're going to need to take a break right now. Uh, here's the first of three songs we'll play by country Joe McDonald. This is I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die, like Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner, also performed at Woodstock. More with author and cultural historian H. Bruce Franklin on how the U.S. moved seamlessly after World War II into a country at, excuse me, forever at war. Stay with us. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, there ain't no time to wonder why. We're all going. Come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. I man the swore a go-go. There's plenty good money to be made. Supplying the army with the tools of the trade. Just hope and pray that if they drop the bomb, we're dropping on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, I ain't no time to wonder why. We'll be all going to die. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Support for WFHB also comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. Welcome back to Interchange. Today's show is Undoing the Falsifications of History, a crash course offered to us by author and cultural historian H. 
Bruce Franklin. Uh, before the break or in the first segment, we had left off talking about how um, uh, Bruce Franklin says that the Vietnam War plausibly started, arguably started in fall, in the fall of 1945. Now, Bruce, you mentioned French, Japanese, and German troops all all headed in to, uh, to retake Vietnam. Is that what was going on? Yeah, well, we had forced, uh, we had actually given a lot of the German POWs to the French, and a lot of them were forced into the French Foreign Legion. But let's get back to that that moment, because that's a crucial moment. Mm -hmm. And people can look back and say, okay, the Vietnam War, probably for most people listening, that's ancient history. But there's another war that started at the same time, which uh, isn't over yet. That's the Korean War. So um, how did that begin? I, I mentioned the celebration, age 11, uh, August 14th. Three days before that, Washington decided that we would grab half of Korea. This had not been discussed with uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, and so uh, Dean Rusk, who was then a colonel, in the army was given 40 minutes to draw a line across Korea, which had been a nation for thousands of of years. Um, And he had an old geographic map. Uh, He saw the capital Seoul was below the 38th parallel, so he picked the 38th parallel. This was on the night of August 11th, 12th. This is three days before VJ Day. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, the Soviet forces had, were in the process of completely demolishing the main Japanese army. The, this is the biggest land battles fought in the Pacific area. And they began on the uh, night of 8, 9 August. And so their troops were already uh, entering Korea. And part of their their armed forces consisted of the Koreans who had been fighting against the Japanese occupation. Um, so they were prepared to set up a government. Oh, Americans could, couldn't get there for, for several weeks. When we got there, what we did, we grabbed the southern half of, of Korea. We installed Sigmund Rhee, who had been living in the United States as a dictator, we rearmed, like the British in Vietnam, many of the Japanese soldiers, and set up a, a government consisting of the moneyed classes who had cooperated with the Japanese occupation, which had been going on since uh, 1905. Um, now, you know, People hear this, they say, well, this is what Franklin's saying. How do I know this is true? Um, one of the things I do in the book is I try to use uh, sources that people can access online. I mean, these are archival sources, but they are available online. So there's a 1948 CIA report describing, <laughs> describing the difference between the government in the North and the government in the South. They recognize the government in the, in the North is actually providing for the needs of the people, and the government in the South is a dictatorship um, which rests on the very people who had supported the Japanese occupation. Hmm. And we're, we're still fighting that war. Um, 
North Korea wants us to sign a treaty saying the war is over, we refuse to do it. That's today. So that's not ancient history. Mm. Well, it is it is one of those things that, that turn in kind of into a kind of um, morass of, uh, you know, a stats of figures, statistics, things that, as you say, feel ancient and yet continue to be uh, the drivers of our, our own uh, policies and the global world order, right? So there, these are the issues that, that have the beginning in a sort of a post-World War II attempt to, to break up the world and hand them to the victors or steal them from the other victors in a sense, right? So it's, uh, it's one of those things I, I don't mean to laugh about, but it's also hard to track, right? Uh, this is, you know, especially in America where we don't do very much learning when it comes to the history of the world and, and other nations at all. So uh, it's important, I know, to find, uh, find a way to understand this very key period. One of the things I like about your book, too, is how personal it is, right? How it is about Bruce Franklin as a child, right? Bruce Franklin as a, as a boy who has to try to understand these things as well. And what makes it, um, I think, insightful for many of us is that we live in these moments, right? So you live through these moments, and as you live through these moments, you are a, um, you are one of many, right? You are a normal kid who who sort of is propagandized by the world around you, and that's a strength of this book. That's pretty interesting is is to try to understand how it is that someone who is so clearly critical of the U.S. begins as as just like every other patriot in many ways. No, I was I was more so. I was very gung ho, yeah. Culturalized during World War II, um, Douglas MacArthur was a hero. I was for Joe McCarthy, and I, and for me, this is very crucial to understand what this means about consciousness. Let's connect that to the present. Um, I don't, I don't believe that most of the people who voted for Trump or still support Trump are bad people. Maybe they have bad ideas. Um, maybe they, maybe they uh, have some, some false ideas. But I say I. But I was in the same. I was in the same situation. I, I supported Joe McCarthy. I don't think I was a bad person um, when I was doing that. I had I had bad ideas. That's that's for sure. And so one reason I get messianic on the, on this subject is I, I, what I try to do in the book is to show how somebody who has all the all the worst ideas the most false the most false ideas about historical reality the nature of America and so forth um, has to confront hard facts uh, in ex- experience that force this person that's me this is the crash course so that's the title to change into somebody else and it's it's not that i sought this sought this out and and the most you know ultimately what was most radicalizing for me was my experience um in the air force flying in the strategic air command as a navigator and squadron intelligence officer Mm. So the you you actually were a part of the machine that that you at now uh, of course uh, I assume oppose whole, wholeheartedly. Yeah, I was not, not just part of the machine, but yeah, I was participating in top secret, mm. uh, illegal, 
uh, and very um, dangerous missions. I mean, dangerous for the world mm. um, because uh, we, was, this is midair refueling. We were refueling bombers that were flying over the Soviet Union on two different kinds of missions. One uh, espionage, and the other was was provocation. Um, and you know, as far as being, you know, getting this concept of are you a bad person when you're doing bad things? Well. I look back, you know, I, I, I title that chapter um, 13 Confessions of a Cold Warrior. I look back, and I, uh, there were three times when we launched, a stack launched. We didn't know when we launched that um, whether this was it. This, these, these were not practice. We did a lot of practice launches. This wasn't practice. This was the real thing. And I look back on that. And I, I, I'm so ashamed and shocked, uh, but also educated by the fact that not for one second did I ask myself, should I be doing this? Hmm. I mean, I was participating in a mission which could have, could have been uh, the end of human civilization. And I never raised that question, um, should I be doing this? Mm, that is a difficult thing to confront, I suppose. When you uh, when you think about it and you look back at the time, um, you know, you're not alone there either. You know, do you have, uh, were there many other people that were, I mean, at what point do you, <laughs> I keep wanting to think, well, how, how do you, how do the rest of the, the, you know, your companions operate in that space too? It's normal to be flying espionage uh, into, in the Arctic, towards the Soviet Union and fly back. Uh, It's normal to have nuclear warheads uh, strapped to your planes. It's normal to be refueling in very dangerous conditions. And it's normal to lose uh, those warheads. It's normal to crash with warheads. You know, all these things are happening in a world that, uh, as you say in in that chapter, I think, uh, is not, there's no satire in Dr. Strangelove. This is, this is the reality that you are living. I wouldn't say there's no satire. Well, I'm sorry. Sure, it's not the strange words. I said, "Hey, this is pretty. This is pretty realistic movie." <laughs> right, right. That's what you were living. Yeah, and uh, well, let's let's talk about those confessions when we come back. We're going to take an, another break. Uh, a, this is Untitled Protest. Uh, it's, this is the number two song tonight from Country Joe McDonald. When we return, Bruce Franklin will confess more of the more of those sins of a cold warrior. Stay with us. Red and swollen tears tumble from her eyes while cold silver birds who came to cruise the skies send death down to bend and twist her tiny hands and then proceed to target B in keeping with their plans Khaki priests of Christendom, interpreters of love, ride a stone leviathan across a sea of blood, and pound their feet into the sand of shores they've never seen. 
delegates from the western land to join the death machine and we send cards and letters the oxen lie beside the road their bodies baked in mud and fat flies chew out their eyes then bathe themselves in blood and superheroes fill the skies tally sheets in hand yes keeping score in times of war takes a superman the junk crawls past hidden death its cargo shakes inside and soldier children hold their breath and kill them as they hide and those who took so long to learn the subtle ways of death lie and bleed in patty mud with questions on their breath and we send prayers and praises this is Doug Storm on Interchange that was untitled protest uh, by uh, Uncle Joe McDonald um that that's a hard one to move off from. It's <laughs> a great song. Yeah. Um, my guest by telephone is H. Bruce Franklin. He's been fighting against a pro-war culture for 50 years. And he's also one of my favorite scholars of Herman Melville. Bruce, maybe Crash Course is kind of a white jacket and Billy Budd hybrid? Well, it's <laughs> from Melville. That worked his way in there on the yeah. pieces. Yeah, well, you got to forgive me for saying that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, uh, uh, to, to move off, the, I, I don't mean to introduce the levity there, but it's part of the issue here is that we, uh, that, that song by, uh, that, that song entitled Protest, uh, I brought it in as much because it reminded me of how this country, at least, always responds to its responsibilities when it's the perpetrator of these tragedies, right? Uh, you know, if you look look at all the uh, the sort of uh, uh, pushback at Parkland and anything that happens with gun violence in America, uh, we send cards and letters. Um, it's a re- that was really such a um, moving moving piece. So, uh, Bruce, uh, let's uh, let's. I'm going to push past the confessions, actually, because we don't have a lot of time, and there's so much in this book that I want to hear about from you. But one thing that struck me there as you were talking is the way in which we operate uh, against these independent nations or nations who had never been independent or who were always colonized or always trying to find independence. You know, at the same time, there's you know, roughly the same time we, we begin to have the issues with Cuba, right? Another, another nation that wants to be sovereign and have its, you know, have its, uh, its country back. Um, so these things are not, this is kind of par for the course, right, for, for an imperial country like ours. Yeah, see, we, we've been fighting against um, the movement for, of uh, people of color um, against colonialism and against neocolonialism. These are, the, these are the wars that have been going on ever since 
the end of World War Two, and of course they were going on. Uh, they were going on before them. I mean, this is this is what um, Martha Luther King was talking about in that absolutely wonderful speech in April '67, when he said that we are fighting on the wrong side of a world revolution. And I think that that's, you know, today, here we are, the most powerful nation militarily in, in history. Nothing like this has ever existed before. The, rich, the richest nation on the planet, and we were the richest nation and most powerful nation at the end of uh, World War II, uh, that, that day, August uh, 1445. So, and we've been fighting almost nonstop wars ever since then, and and that was our last victory celebration. We we we're losing most of the most of these wars, and we look around the country, and I and I, I I spend time with people of all classes. So for the for decades, most of my leisure time has been spent fishing with working class. White men, um, and I, of course, have spent time with academics and so forth. I don't know anybody who supports these wars hmm. right across the political spectrum, except except Congress, um, the president, um, his advisors, and so forth, and of course the the countries that are making lots of money. So, you know, you, this is one of the main things that I'm trying to address in what I call a crash course, and then the second, you know, from the good war, which wasn't a good war, to now a forever war. So, today, I mean, if you were going to ask your the listeners to say, well, how many wars are we fighting in right now, you would get a whole bunch of different answers, because it's, it's hard to count. The wars that we're fighting. There's actually this amazing thing in the Wall Street Journal today. A Republican congressman uh, from Colorado wrote that Congress has completely abandoned its authority on war making. He said, I've been in Congress four years and have never had an opportunity to vote on whether we should be doing this. Mm. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is H. Bruce Franklin, author most recently of Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War. Um, so so the, the truth is that, um, what, that this country is not anything but a, a, like a warring nation that the nation itself has no clue about? Uh, the, you know, one of the things you point out um, in the, in, I think it's, I think it's still in that that chapter on Confessions of a Cold Warrior when you, you deal a little bit with Cuba. Uh, one of the things you point out is that, you know, we hear Kennedy, who who is the great hope of everyone, right? Kennedy is the young, the 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 uh, kind of an aristocrat. I'm not sure we're supposed to be hoping for the aristocrat to take us take us somewhere in particular, but uh, you know, Kennedy is supposed to be something else, and and the the um, the issues with Cuba uh, actually, um, you know, he speaks as if Cuba has done some. I mean, not Cuba, but the Soviet Union has done something that uh, is offensive. You know, that that that's aggression you know, and putting uh, nuclear warheads on Cuba, but it's a response from the Soviets to the U.S. putting nuclear warheads in Turkey, right? Yeah, well, that, that, it was exactly the same distance from, there, from Moscow as 
Cuba was from Washington. But in addition to the uh, ones in Turkey, we, we had already surrounded the this, this Soviet Union um, with nuclear capable, or not capable, but carrying uh, strategic bombers. Um, so, I mean, you know, this, is, this is, again, not ancient history. Um, the war against or with uh, Russia. When did it begin? When did it begin? I mean, we we participated in invading the Soviet Union uh, in 1918, 1919. Right. In response to um, the, yeah, in response to the Russian didn't Revolution. We recognize that government for 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 decades. Mm -hmm. uh, we at the end of, the end of World War Two. That that fateful moment. I mean, here we are, the most powerful nation militarily in, in history. Here's the, here's the Soviet Union, which had been uh, ruined by the invasion by um, Germany and its fascist allies, lost 30 million people uh, killed during that war. And we were supposed to believe that the Soviet Union was somehow a threat um, to the United States, a military threat, uh, and some an ideological threat, and that there was a fifth column in the United States prepared to help the Soviet Union overthrow the government of the United States. You know how how could we how could we believe something that was so preposterous? Mm. And one of the things that, for me that I was most shocking uh, when I was in the Air Force. I mean, I believed that this was the duck and cover days. Mm -hmm. I believed that we were under the threat of a nuclear attack from the Soviet Union and discovered, and most of the people in SAC didn't know this, I was in intelligence. It was just one reason I got to the documents that proved this. They had no means to attack the United States. And we're talking now as late as uh, 1957, 58. Mm. And so, and then, I, one of the things I try to understand in the book is here we were in, in World War II, all, all kids, we were supposed to admire the Soviets. These were, these were heroic people. And, of course, they were the ones who did the most by far in defeating um, Nazi Germany and its allies. And then in the twinkling of an eye, um, by, by, certainly by, seven, by 47, 48, um, there, there are these horrible, there's this horrible red octopus that's trying to take over the whole, whole world. And I think, you know, how did, how did my consciousness change so fast? You know, how did, how did I suddenly become uh, a great admirer of these anti-communists and uh, like, like Joey McCarthy? How did I, how did I come to believe that we, that somehow the Soviet Union was a menace to the United States? Hmm. And that war, is, of course, is still, go is still going on. Right, right. We you know that's a question. I'm not sure you answer it. <laughs> you know, how, how did that happen to me? Right. You you go through in the book many many in many of the chapters. You kind of discuss the way in which you're you're living a life of of uh, again a normal person that goes to the movies, that reads books, that uh, that is just sort of a part of the culture that you're you're living in. It's it's one of the things that you find out as you begin to do your intelligence work too is that you understand uh, what is going on and you begin to read between the lines in newspapers and, and, 
and find out that, you know, you're getting things you probably have a lot. Well, I think you things that you did have firsthand experience in uh, were reported or not reported or reported falsely. You know, that you you actually were able to know by your own career that the things that were being reported in the newspapers were absolute fabrications. And so, you know, one of these things that I think is important too is that it does, as you say, try to make a distinction between people being good or, you know, good, good not, not necessarily bad people, but to say, you know, we are we are sort of creatures of these particular contexts and, and how we come to understand them is, uh, well, I think it's a mugs game in some sense, right? How are we supposed to understand how we became who we, who we are, right? You, this is part of the book you're, you're writing. How did Bruce Franklin become Bruce Franklin, who he is today? How did he come to write those 19 books? You know, what is it that happened that made you understand that you needed to go in a different direction? Yeah, and of course, the answer to that is simple. In a way, it's simple. It gets very complicated. But it's simple is if you want to understand reality, you have to participate in trying to change that reality. Mm. And that's what happened, not just to me, but ten, tens of millions of other people uh, during, the, during the Vietnam War. There are, our attempt to change reality made us understand that reality in in ways that were often very shocking. I mean, it's 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 embarrassing uh, to go back and look at the earlier early early stages of that movement and see just how naive we were, just how little we knew about our, about our own country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's time for our final break. This is our last song by Country Joe McDonald, who I think I called Uncle Joe earlier. Uh, here's Agent. Agent Orange from the album Vietnam Experience. Stay with us for more on the U.S. policy of forever war with Bruce Franklin on Interchange on WFHB. I was 17, just a teenage kid, the year that I enlisted. I can't remember why I did. My mom said I insisted. I had some strange idea then That Uncle Sam was right Mama cried but she signed the card And then I went off to fight Got off the plane in Vietnam It didn't seem like war With all I saw I started to wonder What I had come there for Some officers got drunk at night And cheated on their wives And the peasants on the other side Were just struggling for their lives Oh, the army tried some fancy stuff To bring them to their knees Like Agent Orange defoliants To kill the brush and trees We'd hike all day on jungle trails Through clouds of poison spray And they never told me then That it would hurt my health today But I got the news this morning Yeah, the doctors told me so They killed me in Vietnam And I didn't even know I tried hard to forget the war like everybody did Settled down, got married, even had 
had a couple of kids. Well, my children both had birth defects, and the doctors had their doubts. They never could understand it, but I think I've figured it out. Cause I got the news this morning, yeah, the doctors told me so. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. You might get cancer of the skin. You can file for disability. But you might not live to win Oh, I got the news this morning Yeah, the doctors told me so They killed me in Vietnam And I didn't even know Oh, the doctors said I've got some time Trying to be kind I've never been a radical but this has changed my mind Oh, I'd be so proud to hear my kids say Hell no, I won't go Because you killed my dad in Vietnam And he didn't even know Yes, I'd be so proud to hear my kid Say hell no, I won't go Because you killed my dad in Vietnam And he didn't even know Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We just heard the song Agent Orange by Country Joe McDonald. Agent Orange is an herbicide and defoliant chemical known for its use by the U.S. military as part of its herbicidal warfare program, Operation Ranch Hand, during the Vietnam War. Obviously, uh, the song we heard uh, deals with the effects of uh, Agent Orange on U.S. soldiers in Vietnam, but also, obviously, uh, I think up to 4 million people in Vietnam uh, were exposed to the defo- defoliant also. Uh, my guest is Bruce Franklin, author of 19 books, the latest of which is Crash Course, From the Good War to the Forever War, just published by Rutgers University Press. Professor Franklin is joining us by telephone. Uh, so we can center this last segment on napalm, I suppose, or chapter eight is Burning Illusions. And then this is a good chapter, I think, uh, Bruce. This is about politics, corporate war profiteering, which is capitalism's mandate, and organizing against it. Um, I have a, a, actually in my hand a copy of a double issue of the literary journal Caterpillar from April 1968. I think it's a double issue, April to July 1968. It was edited and published by the poet Clayton Eshel. And on pages 147 and 8, there are pictures of two 12-year-old Vietnam, Vietnamese girls burned by American napalm. Horrifying to look at, but necessary. Um, you have firsthand experience of trying to stop you know, United, was it United uh, Technical Company? United Techno- Oh, United Technology Center, a producer of, of uh, napalm. Yeah, well, this is, uh, I, I just mentioned, you have to, to understand reality, you have to try to change it. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, an amazing experience with so many people. Um, we, it took place in Redwood City, uh, suburban city, um, where the, uh, they got a contract to build a new napalm plant in the Baylands, uh, San Francisco Bay. 
And um, because it was on Baylands, um, we found out that there was uh, a regulation, a statute, that, that that was subject to public uh, approval or disapproval. Um, so um, the, many people were involved in this. This was the beginning of the movement against Napalm. And um, so we had a petition to have, an, uh, to have a vote on whether this contact should be allowed. And what was revealed in the movement was the role of the, the corporate media, um, the role of the courts, the role of big money. Um, that, that's, all, that's all very important stuff. But the key thing that was revealed was the people. Because when we started this movement, nobody knew what Napalm was. or Somebody knocked on the door um, and started trying to talk to the woman who came to the door. And she said, oh, Napalm, no, I, I use Tide. <laughs> That's where consciousness was. And so the powers that be did not take seriously this petition campaign. We got overwhelming response from the people of Redwood City demanding that we have this vote, at which point uh, they pulled a complicated legal stratagem and said, oh, we just signed a new contract, so now you have to have a vote on the new contract, not, not the old contract. Um, so, and the, and the, the, the local press was editorializing about why people should not be allowed to vote on war and peace issues. Which was eye-opening, and then we think about think about that. When have we ever had an opportunity to vote on war and peace issues? Here we are in this forever war, unending war. The one time we did we actually got to vote was in uh, 1982 during the, the nuclear freeze movement. Uh, vote in nine states, which was one overwhelmingly, often by a three-to-one margin, uh, against the continuation of the nuclear buildup. So, um, so this was a discovery of the, what we call the power of the people. This is why people start saying power to the people. And, and it's, 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 I guess it's that experience, perhaps more than anything else, um, that convinced me that if people understood the actual history rather than the lies that we're fed, we would put a stop to it. Because the, the American people, overwhelmingly, across the political spectrum, we don't want to be in war. We want to live in peace. We want to have that our tremendous productive and creative abilities used for education, which is falling apart, health care, which is falling apart, the environment, which is, which is being attacked, um, the infrastructure, which is falling apart, where we spend trillions and trillions and more trillions of dollars on, on war-making and war preparation. Who, who's for that? Who wants it? Right. Well, we know who wants it. <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> right. We, we do, but, the, right. but, the, but the, the main problem is that people 
underestimate the power of the people. Mm. Well, that's a, a great point. I think it's a, a fascinating, uh, in your book, uh, I think, in, again, it's in the chapter Burning Illusions, you you actually print two editorials from the Palo Alto Times that you say are revealing in how they uh, how they actually talk about this power to the people, right? Uh, one of them says, um, uh, while there may be some question about the use of napalm in warfare, there may be, I suppose, it is not a question to be cited by the voters of Redwood City or any other municipality. It's easy to see what would happen if every city were to be allowed to make its own decision as to what war material is acceptable to its citizens. The people of Sunnyvale could vote on whether Polaris missiles should be man- manufactured by Lockheed. The people of Palo Alto could vote on whether electronics equipment for guided missiles should be built in the city, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The re- result would be chaos. I I think here in Bloomington, if we could vote on whether we had PCBs in our land because of Westinghouse building TVs, we would vote against that. So these are these are the same kinds of things. You don't get a chance to speak about how your world is made around you. Yeah, and that's and you know and and discovering you know this power of the people. That of course is what um, makes somebody a revolutionary. <laughs> that's right, like and Bruce Franklin. That because I mean you know let's recognize reality right now. I mean most people feel there's just nothing they can do about it. Mm-hmm. Well, in order to get over that, um, they'd have to start trying to do something. Ah, it's a fair point. Have to, have to learn something about about history. Yeah. You know the the, the yeah that's why I take this title crash course. You know I've been teaching history in uh, research universities for for 50 years mm-hmm. and realizing that I could never assume that there was anybody who who had been educated in the United States and knew very much at all just about American about American mm-hmm. history mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you know the and there's a, there's a, there's a reason for, there's a reason for that you know Amen. The, the attack on public education that's going on is very uh, pointed. It has a point, which right. is to make sure that people are kept in certain kinds of ignorance and just learn skills that can be exploited. That's what you're supposed to learn. That's right. But you have a book out called The Crash Course, uh, From the Good War to the Forever War, and people can uh, learn about their history there. We're out of time. Thank you, Bruce Franklin, for joining us today, for sharing your amazing life with us in your book, Crash Course. We only got a little bit of it today, so there's a lot more to explore, though, there. Thanks again, Bruce, for joining us. Thank you so much, Doug. That's our show. We'll close with Bob Dylan's Masters of War from 1963. Thanks to H. Bruce Franklin for his masterful account of the United States at Forever War. Bruce's book is Crash Course from the Good War to the Forever War, published by Rutgers University Press. And Bruce Franklin's first book is also one of the most interesting books written on the work of Herman Melville. It's called The Wake of the Gods, Melville's Mythology. Find a copy. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange, executive producer and engineer tonight is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community. Community radio station WFHB. It had behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks. You that never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world. 
Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand 